morning. I'm Joel Dykstra. Today we will be reading from Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20, which can be found on page 789 in the Pew Bible. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let, your hands, not, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples, among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I feel like uh, having a kid's choir is like having 40 flower girls at your wedding. It's like a super high-risk, high-reward scenario. And they, uh, they crushed it. Way to go, man. That was really fun. Hey, if we um, haven't met again, my name is Chris. I want to welcome you, especially if you're family or friends of some of these little ones, or maybe it's just your first time. Maybe this Advent season has you asking, is there hope? Is God real? Does anybody care? Um, I'm really thankful that you're here this morning. Uh, we're in this beautiful book of Zephaniah. It's part of a longer series we've been in on the minor prophets. Every week we've been saying that prophets aren't minor because of their importance. They actually speak to some of the most significant realities of our existence, of our, of our lives, of our situations. They speak of the brokenness that we experience. They speak of the brokenness that's inside of us. They speak of the brokenness that's outside of us. They, they speak of the longing that we have for all things to be made new. The minor prophets give us a big view of who God is. They, they tell us a bigger view than we normally have of God. And they keep weaving together God's holiness and his just judgment and his love and mercy. Two things that we have a really hard time holding together in tension. The minor prophets just keep telling us over and over again, God is holy, therefore he must deal with the sin and brokenness of the world. And the way he chose to do that is by sending his son, this promised one that we're waiting for in this season of Advent. We look back to the first time Jesus came, this son of David, this root of Jesse, this branch of Israel that would come, that's prophesied about, that our children so beautifully kind of preached to us. He came once and then the scriptures tell us he's coming again coming to finish and to complete all the things that we needed. So he had this judgment, this justice, this pain, and then this hopefulness. So there's a horribleness to the minor prophets. Even if you're reading Zephaniah, the first two and a half chapters are dark. I mean, they just open up with a dark melting of everything. There's a horribleness to them, and then there's this beautiful hopefulness. And the difference is what you do with this promised one, what you do with the Messiah, what you do with the one who was prophesied to come and to make all things new. That, that's the hinge point of all the prophets. And so Zephaniah uh, speaks a, a similar word to things we've already heard. There's some themes that we've traced in all of these 
Minor Prophets. And each week we're trying to highlight slightly different things, just so you don't hear exactly the same sermon every week for 12 weeks. We're trying to highlight different parts. And Zephaniah gives us a chance to answer the question, how does God see you in the midst of all of that brokenness? If he's a God of justice and he's a God of righteousness and he's a God who promises judgment, how does he see you in the middle of that? What does he think about you? And Zephaniah tells us that he, he sings something over us. So we see what he sees about us through the way that he sings about us in the text that we've had read. So I'm actually really hopeful to engage this with you and uh, hope you'll be encouraged to hear the good news in the midst of all the darkness that God sings over you. What a, what a profound reality. Let me just pray for us and then we'll uh, step towards this text. Jesus, we have just said a couple of things already of, of our situation, of our need. We're trying to be honest about our brokenness, our sinfulness even. The things that your word is so clear deserve and even demand your judgment. So we, we hold this honesty about our frailty and our brokenness. And then the scriptures say things like you love us, you forgive us, you call us to repentance, you, you have a word for us. So I, I pray, Father, in this space that um, you would pull those things together, your love and your justice, that we would see Jesus clearly as the one who makes those things possible, that you could still be just and you could forgive and love us. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts in such a way that we encounter these truths fresh? If we've heard them before, maybe for the first time, would you pierce our hearts? Would you, would you give a kind of hope to the room that you're the kind of God who is both just and holy and who is loving and merciful? So, so give us grace for that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, so in these, this is week 10. Next week we'll be in Haggai, which I don't know, man, what the stats will be, but I would guess less than 1% of churches on Christmas Eve will preach a message on Haggai. Uh, we did think about it, so we come and maybe like be, be inspired, be confused. I think it'll be beautiful. But the, the idea is all of them are telling us the same story. And they follow a similar pattern. There's this warning of God's judgment and then this call to repentance and then this offer of hope. And holding all that together makes it actually more beautiful. The language of Zephaniah chapter 3, especially verse 17, I think is probably one of the most quoted verses in the Old Testament because it's just so beautiful. Would you let your eyes drop there if you haven't opened a Bible, open it back up. It's on page 790 in that black Bible. But listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This beautiful picture of the God who holds the entire universe together, somehow cradling you in his arms, singing over you to quiet you, to calm you the way a, a mother would a child. And he does it with rejoicing. He does it with gladness, with delight, and he, he sings over you about his love. Okay, that by itself, if you take it all the way out of context, put that on a coffee mug, like that is beautiful. But when you see that verse in the larger context of Zephaniah, on the backdrop of the justice and judgment that God is holding as well, this becomes, I think, all the more beautiful. What the minor prophets have been seeking to do is expand our view of God so that we can hold together what normally we're asked to separate. 
Either God is just and therefore you're in trouble and should feel shame, or he's loving and therefore you get away with whatever you want. He doesn't really care. He's really permissive. What the minor prophets are doing is pulling those together and saying, no, no, you can have hope that God will make all things right because the just one is the merciful one. So I'm trying to talk about an Old Testament God and a New Testament God as if there's like the only way to make sense of it is to separate out who God is. But when you look at the context of Zephaniah and you see that God is the same one who offers you hope in the midst of the horribleness of our brokenness, I think it becomes even more beautiful. So it's not less than you thought, like this is a passage about God's love and then you're like, oh shoot, well, he actually judges me. It's not that way. It's actually better than you thought. To hear that it's deeper and more significant, that he sings over you in the midst of the darkness is all the more beautiful. The minor prophets seek to expand your view of who God is so you can embrace your need for who he is so that you can actually receive this song. As we start, I just want to like pose the question to you, what song do you think God sings over you? Like if you just imagine he's singing a song, like what would the words be? What, what would he say to you? We don't have a lot of songs that sing about what God sings to us. And I just did a quick search. It's not exhaustive. You're welcome to kind of explore this. But I don't know if we see a specific song that God actually sings, the words to that. What this shows us is like the harmonies. It shows us like the hooks of the song of what would be in that, but not the specific words. I wonder what words you think he would sing over you. I was walking and praying for you last night, and I don't even know why, but the song from Greece, You Better Shape Up, came to my mind, which I hope that is the first and last time to quote Greece in this pulpit. But, but I wondered, actually, as I was praying for you, how many of you hear that song? And the Bible is really the answer to the question, how can you make yourself lovable? How can you do enough? How can you shape up? Do you hear God singing a word of condemnation and shame? Or maybe you hear something totally permissive, something that's really benign, something that doesn't have any teeth at all to your life. There's some sort of just like nursery rhyme. Maybe that's what you hear God saying. It doesn't make any real difference to your life. In fact, when you look at Zephaniah, what you see is some of the judgment that he's saying to the people is because they had that view of God. There was a complacent kind of permissive, passive understanding in their minds about who God was, and he brings judgment even for that. There's a passage earlier in Zephaniah where it says, God won't do anything or not do anything. It's like it is totally irrelevant. It doesn't even matter. Maybe you have a benign song in your mind. Here's what I, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to hold your face down in this verse in the best of ways to help you engage the good news of the robust love of God on the backdrop of your brokenness. And I say that that way because I think this is hard to hold on to. The first time I remember hearing Zephaniah 3.17, I was in Switzerland, which is the beginning of a great story, by the way, when you say it like that. The first time I heard this, I was in Switzerland. But, but I was. I was on a mission trip. We'd been in Hungary for four weeks, and then we transitioned over to Switzerland, and we ran a camp for English-speaking kids kind of from all over Europe. It was a, it was a blast. And as we were getting ready for that, one of the evenings, a counselor came and just prayed over several of us in the dorms. And I was used to praying things like, God, would you help us? God, would you forgive us? God, would you lead us? God, would you give us strength? 
God, would you show up tomorrow? I was used to praying those kinds of prayers at the end of the day. And this man, this counselor, laid his hand on my head and he prayed, God, would you help Chris receive the song you want to sing over him? And I didn't didn't know what to do. So I'm like one eye open, like, I don't don't even know what what that is. And then he quoted Zephaniah 317. And I just remember thinking, I don't know what to do with this exuberant, unqualified, beautiful, deep love of God. Like the voice of shame and self-criticality is so loud. The the idea of performing to be loved, the, the idea of proving yourself, the idea of comparing and ranking to other people just has been carried over into my relationship with God in so many ways that the thought of him just singing over, of delighting in me, the language is, is so provocative that he, he rejoices over you, he delights in you, he, he sees you and his heart is glad. Like, I don't need to impose my dysfunction on you, but, but I don't think I'm alone in the idea of receiving this sweet word from God. And if you do receive it, I wonder if you're at risk of flattening it down and making it mere sentimentality. Maybe you go like, of course he loves me. That's his job. Of course he loves me. I do whatever I want and he forgives me. That's the arrangement that we have. I hear that song all the time. I think that would be one of the other traps. One is this overly critical thing where God, you could never please. The other one would be one that you don't have to please. He's like lucky to have you. Do, do whatever you want. Maybe that's the way you encounter words about the love of God. Like you just take them for granted. Like you just assume that's what you deserve. What Zephaniah does, though, is reminds us that we, we don't actually deserve anything except the wrath of God. So, so here's the way I want to start. Go back to chapter 1. I'm just kind of walk you through like how deep this brokenness is and then how wide the brokenness is, and I want to do that because I just put my cards on the table. I want to spring load for you your deepened ability to receive this song that he sings over you. So jump back to chapter 1 of Zephaniah. After a quick introduction of his lineage in chapter 1, verse 2, he says this. This is like the beginning of it. Here we go. God loves you. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. The problem we have is that God and his justice cannot overlook our brokenness and sinfulness, our rebellion and our treason. So rightly, he says, I must deal with that. And the Bible says that the the offense is so deep, the only thing that could actually pay the penalty for our brokenness is death itself. And if you're a Hebrew and you're encountering this text in the 6th or 7th century B.C., you would immediately go to the book of Genesis. You would hear an unraveling of creation in verse 3. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. He's reversing the creation account, how God created on these different days, saying, I'm going to melt this entire thing. The just justice of God engaging with our sin at the deepest level, saying this is what your sin deserves. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is to my own people, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. These are idols that they worship, these false gods, in the name of the idolatrous priest with, uh, who are among all the priests. 
those who bow down on the roofs of the host of heavens and those who bow down and swear the Lord and yet also swear of Milcom. So here he says, this is the reason why you worship idols and you have the audacity to say you worship me and you worship another God as well. You swear by the Lord and yet you also swear by this other God. You're two-timing cheating on me. Of course God would be upset. Of course God would want to move towards that. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, you don't even seek the Lord or inquire of him. You've actually abandoned and you've left him. And then he says, be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. 1-7 kind of names this idea of the day of the Lord, which is all throughout the prophets. It's the day that is both near to judgment when God would judge his people and shatter Jerusalem and bring them off into exile. It also speaks of the day of the Messiah that would come as the day of the Lord. It also speaks of the day of the Lord as that last and final day. Shot through this whole book is this warning and exhortation about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, depending on who you are, either sounds like the worst or the best. If you know the Lord of the day of the Lord, then when he appears, it is the moment that he sets everything right. He forgives, he's rescuing, he heals. If you don't know the Lord, it is the worst day. It's a horrible day of melting with fire, of judgment, where the just one justly deals with all of your brokenness. What you do with the Lord of the day of the Lord determines how you hear that. There's only two options. One is horrible and one is beautiful. And depending on how you see God, how you see your need, this word would have a certain impact on you. Uh, if you're an enemy of God, it would be a warning to you to repent and turn. If you're a person who says they believe Yahweh, but you've actually mixed together, you've been two-timing, you've been cheating, you've been worshiping idols, it's this call back to repentance. And if you're persecuted, if you're being crushed, if the injustice of the world has landed on you and you faithfully trust God, it would be a word of hope. This is the day, that's right, God won't turn a blind eye to my suffering. God won't ignore all this brokenness. One day the Lord will come, and on that day he will make all things right. It's either a call of judgment, it's, it's a call back to repentance, or it's this sweet, sweet hope for you. And what you do with the Lord of the day of the Lord is what determines that. And what he says is, hey, be silent this is not a trifling thing. This is not a small thing. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. It's coming. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. He starts with the leaders. He's going to go leaders. Then he's going to go merchants. Then he's going to go military. The things that we might be tempted to trust in. He's going to go to the things that we look to, the things that we aspire to. Our possessions, our ability to keep ourselves safe are our own kind of independence. He's going to name all of those as places of brokenness. He says, I come at the officials who array themselves in foreign attire. Far from being separate and holy, they, they want to blend in with the world. They don't worship me. They, they take on all the customs and values and behaviors of the world around them. And God says, because of that, I'm coming with judgment. Verse 9, on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Why would God bring justice, injustice? Why, why, why would God bring justice to our injustice? Because of the violence 
and the fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, verse 10, a cry will be heard from the fish gate and a wail from the second quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of Mortar, for those for all the traders are no more in the way out, the way out silver they are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. He's totally irrelevant. Those who trust in their stuff, who see God as irrelevant. 14, 15, 16, he's just going to staccato-wise talk about this day. It's a day of wrath, a day of distress, a day of ruin, a day of darkness, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and a battle cry. God is coming to judge. He says his enemies will actually have their blood poured out like dust and their flesh like dumb. Okay. okay, he sings over you, he delights in you, he loves you. Sitting on top of this backdrop, I think, makes that all the more beautiful. What the Bible doesn't do is round off the edges of honesty. It lets you be honest about your brokenness. Several times in Zephaniah, he's going to talk about shame. And being honest about your shame rather than hiding your shame actually lets it actually be healed. So I think chapter 1 takes us to the depth of our brokenness so you can be honest about where you need God to heal you. Chapter 2 then will go to the, the breadth of that brokenness. He's going to name all these cities around him. All the cities of the other nations he's going to name Ashdod and Ashkelon. He names Gaza in the middle of that. He names the Cushites and Assyria and Nineveh. He names Moab and the Amorites. He names all these nations and he lands finally on his own people, the city of Jerusalem in chapter 3. He's basically saying, hey, this is everyone. It's not just those people. This is about you. This is about the world you live in. This is about what you experience. The justice and the judgment comes to those spaces. Chapter 3 continues the darkness all the way down to verse 8. Flip there real quick where he says, after all of this, he says, therefore wait. Wait, declares the Lord, for the day when I raise up to seize prey. For my decision is to gather nations and assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. He names it, invites you to be honest about it, and then he says, would you just wait there for a moment? Don't run past it. Let that darkness be the backdrop by which you hear what I am about to say. The same way Habakkuk last week, after he asked these questions of God, he waited, stood to hear what God would say. Okay, so here's the point. After that depth and that brokenness, what, what do we wait for? What would God say next? Look in verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Okay, this is like the biggest record scratch in the scriptures. He's going from all this darkness to, hey, at that time, on that day, I'm going to renew and restore and change things. I'm going to make it so that people will call upon my name and they would actually be saved. Look in verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, like your biggest enemies, sin and death. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. If you're just reading this, chapter 3, verse 9 just feels like a totally disorienting shift. And you wonder, how would he go from that judgment to this healing? How would he go from the space of darkness to the space of singing over us? And what we see here in this second half of chapter 3 is he does it by sending his own son into the world that would take our place. The king of Israel, the Lord, 
is in your midst. This is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. God with us. It's said of Jesus in Matthew 1, 23. In Isaiah, it's prophesied. It's the idea that God himself was going to come to solve our biggest problem. So the depth and the darkness and the brokenness, all the judgment, spring-load us then to look to God as the only one who could rescue. It's in service of eliminating all the other things you might look to. Leaders, economics, military might, security, safety, whatever it is you would fill in those gaps to say, well, I don't need God, I have this. Because that's what the people have been doing, right? Remember, for hundreds of years, they've been living in rebellion. And the minor prophets are aimed at that space to say, repent. As they hear the brokenness of God in that space, there's this call to repentance. Look back to chapter 2, verse 3. He says this, he says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The question you're meant to be asking as you move through Zephaniah is, how do I escape this? What would cover me? Where could I go for shelter? That's what that means. Where, where might I be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger? How can I escape his wrath? What we see in chapter 3, particularly in verse 15, is it's God himself who would come into our midst, who would take our place to make for us a shelter. Okay, and then if you stop there, I think you truncate the good news of the Bible. Because Jesus didn't just come to die to tolerate you. To simply absolve you. That would be amazing. That would be fantastic. That would free you from hell and death and punishment. But what he came to do is actually be in your midst in a relationship with you so that he could look you in the face and he could sing over you. I mentioned, I don't know if we have lots of examples of songs that God actually sings, but what this verse tells us is what the themes are of his song. What are the themes in the song that he has. Come with me down in verse 14. What's the like melody? What does he see? What is he singing? What's the content of his song? Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He sings over you that you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. He absorbs those himself. He sings that he has cleared away your enemies. He's dealt with the things that bind you, the things that tempt you, the things that trap you, the things that, that hold you, the things that enslave you. Your sin, your brokenness, the desires of your heart for things other than him, all the idolatrous things that promise you life and leave you depleted and thirsty. He's cleared all of that away. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He's, he's with you. He gives you his presence. He's, he's near to you. Therefore, you shall never again have to fear evil. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a day when God sings over you, you don't have to be afraid of all the darkness anymore because he's dealt with it, because he, he healed it. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not. You don't have to be afraid, O Zion. Let your hands grow weak. You don't have to actually muster this up yourself. It's not dependent on your own strength. You don't have to... Do this. God does it for you. The Lord your God is in your midst. Again, he's with you. He is near you. The mighty one who will save. 
He'll rejoice over you with gladness. How does he see you in the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of all this brokenness, all the things that you justly deserve? How does he see you? He rejoices over you with gladness. You can translate that. He delights in you. And you can't even stand yourself. You look in the mirror and have all kinds of thoughts about yourself. And here is God knowing everything about you, even things that have left your memory or things you're hiding. And he delights over you with gladness. And he will quiet you with his love. He seeks to actually calm the things that are chaotic inside your heart. And he does it by his love. His very presence, his very nearness, right? And the way he was able to give us his presence was this little baby who was born in a manger in Bethlehem who would grow up to be a man who would die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin so we could be with God in his presence without facing the judgment that we justly deserve. And he quiets you with that gospel story over your failure, over your longings, over things about you that you wish were different, over all the stuff you want to be honest about that actually deserve to separate you from God. To hear that he came in your midst, he kept his promise to be the savior that you needed, actually quiets you. You've got nothing to prove. You couldn't anyway, and you don't have to because of who he is and what he's done. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. I was thinking about that scene in Elf, the very end of it when they're trying to get the sleigh to fly and it runs on Christmas spirit. You know, don't pretend you don't know. You know what this is. And they're sitting there singing that, and uh, the, the clausometer or whatever is not getting enough altitude, and so it's not getting off the ground very well. And the boy looks over at his dad, and he's just kind of mouthing the words. You remember that moment? He's like, better not try, better not hide, better not, better not. And he's like, Dad, the best way to bring Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And then he full-throated sings it, and the sleigh takes off, and everybody claps and cheers. You know that moment in Elf? Okay, think about that. God is not simply mumbling over you because he has to. It's not a tolerated song. He's not going, I love you, whatever. I mean, I wish you were different, but whatever. Full-throated, loud, with loud singing, he delights over you. Have you ever felt, have you ever felt the fact that God delights over you? I mean, yes, he forgives you because he has to, Sure but that he delights over you and he is not mumbling that. He sings it loud. And he sent his son Jesus to take on flesh into the world so we could actually have a plausibility of believing that was true. Watching Jesus interact with the broken, those who are lame, those who are distraught, which he goes down to the outcast and those who are oppressed, those who are lame, those who deal with shame. That's where he goes in verse 19. To watch Jesus deal with people like you and I makes it plausible to believe that he would stand over us and sing with loud singing. Even though we mourn, in verse 18, even though we still suffer, even though there's spaces where, where we have longing, in that space God brings a sweet word. How does God see you in the midst of the darkness of your life, of your heart? He sings over you if you trust him, if you know him. If you look to him to be the one who would actually rescue and save. The day of the Lord is this dividing line. If you look to Jesus as the one who is your only hope, then it is this beautiful day of beauty and joy and hope and forgiveness and reconciliation where God makes all things new. If you reject him, if you two-time on him, 
if you don't acknowledge him, if you're complacent towards him, if, if you don't actually engage with his promises through his son Jesus, then you will justly bear the weight. And all these images of melting down, being swept away, those become your destiny. And he made a way for you to be forgiven and set free so you wouldn't have to endure that. What you do with the Lord of the day of the Lord determines everything about your future. So I said there's three kinds of people, and I think there's three kinds of people here in the room. Some of you don't know God. And maybe you're here seeking, you're here asking. You're in the room because you're like, man, this is not working. Life is not going the way I was told it was going to go. I've been following all these things. I've been wearing all the clothes of my culture. I've been two-timing. I've been taking what I wanted. I've been doing all the stuff. I've been looking at, at my possessions and the places I could find security in my own self-leadership or look to other people to rescue me, and it's simply bankrupt. Maybe you're here this morning. You're ready to receive the Lord of the day of the Lord. He invites you to simply trust him. Jesus says to all who would receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive that he is who he says he was and believe that is what it means to become a Christian. That, that's, that's it. That's what gets you into this song. That's what has him see you that way is him absorbing the wrath of your sin. Some of you are in the room and you would say you trust God. You, you know he's real. You, you believe the story of Jesus. And, and you've had moments in your life where that was the biggest thing in your world. And now it seems like it's on the back burner. It's on the top shelf. It's far away and distant. The word of Zephaniah to you is one of repentance. To return. To seek the Lord. To come to Him. To admit your sin and brokenness and thank Him for His sacrifice on your behalf. But to actually repent. Not lip service. Remember, repentance is not a magic spell. It's not just empty words. The prophets are all about exposing our religious rituals as if that was a way to manipulate and manage God. Maybe you need to hear this morning, stop managing and manipulating God. He wants to sing over you His glory and His goodness, what He's done for you. But you can't manage Him and manipulate Him into that. And to try is not just offensive, it simply won't work. So there's a call to repentance to Christians who've let their hearts drift. And in that third category of those who, God is very real. The idea of Him being your only hope is is what you breathe in and out when you wake up in the morning. You're banking every day on the fact that His mercies are new. Would you hear that God made a promise to finally reconcile and make all things new? In that space for that, there's deep hope for those of you who are faithfully trusting God and things are difficult. Things are hard. Things aren't going the way you wanted. The day of the Lord is a real day. It's a day coming that Jesus made possible that when it comes, it wouldn't crush you. Would you keep hoping? Would you keep trusting? Would you keep engaging? The story of the Bible is needed to tell the whole nature of who God is. You have this creation and this fall, then this long waiting of promise of God's restoration, Jesus actually coming into our world, and then finally God reconciling all things to himself. Because we wrestle with the tension of God's holiness and justice and his, and his love, and it takes the whole Bible to tell the story of how God would engage with us. And when you come to the very end of the story, you see this portrait of what God said he was going to do in Revelation 21, where he's going to make all things new, where he's going to dwell with us finally, where he actually will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. And he who sits on the throne will say, Behold, I'm making all things new. 
Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The good news of Zephaniah is God sings over you because he loves you and delights in you. And it's possible because of what Jesus has done, which is why we take communion every week, to remind ourselves of these truths. I think it's hard to hold the honesty of what we deserve with the love of God in the same space. And so communion is the physical reminder that that's the place where God did it. It's on the cross that he came and he laid down his life so that we could be forgiven and free. I want to invite Christians to come and take communion. There'll also be people in the back hallway who would love to pray for you or with you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you need to just tell somebody that you're repenting and ask them to pray for you, if you want to trust Jesus for the first time, if you are weary because of the brokenness that you're experiencing, there's people in the back hallway by those couches who would love to pray with you or pray for you. I would invite you to go and have people pray for you. Whether you know Jesus or not, have them come and pray. For Christians who are trusting God, who, who are saying, hey, this song is my song, sometimes it feels faint. Sometimes it feels like it's in the the background, and I can barely hear it, but to be reminded of God's love for you is your hope. Would you come and take communion? It's a reminder of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. The way we do it here is we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. Anybody who's trusting in Christ, regardless of what church you belong to, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're welcome to come and take communion. If you're not trusting in Jesus, I ask you just to consider this Lord of the day of the Lord. What you've heard is how God sees you, what he offers you, and you have a choice to make. There's no sales pitch here. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to ask and wrestle with God about his mercy. So maybe you just stay in your seat and pray. If you want to talk to somebody, I'll be here in the front row. There'll be again, people in the back would love to visit with you about what it means to trust the Lord of the day of the Lord. He wants to sing over you. He has sung over you. He is singing over you. You can trust him. Would you pray with me real quick and then we'll take communion. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done, and thanks that what you've done makes it possible for you to sing over us. Would you help us receive even now in this moment the grace and truth that you delight in us, even though we're broken, that you quiet us with your love, even though it feels so chaotic, that you rejoice over us with loud singing because who you are and what you've done has made us whole. Do you fill the room now with faith even as we take reminders of how you accomplish this? In Jesus' name, amen. And when you're ready, come.